You're called to an apartment for a 22-year-old man that was recently diagnosed with COVID-19. His roommate tells you that his friend has had a fever and a cough for the past few days, but he got worried when he started saying his stomach hurt and began vomiting. He's now drowsy and lethargic. You notice that he's taking deep breaths that almost look like sighs, but his respiratory rate seems normal. You're listening to 911Cast, the no-nonsense EMS podcast. This episode is brought to you by Madison Programs, a Brooklyn-based medical training and consulting company with over 20 years of experience, specializing in emergency medical continuing education and AHA certification classes like CPR and first aid for community members and professionals. For more information, email madisonprograms at aol.com. I'm Scott Topiel, and this week, it's all about diabetes. As an EMS provider, you're no stranger to diabetic emergencies. These calls are really part of the bread and butter of emergency response. That's not surprising when you consider that over 30 million Americans, that's nearly 10% of the country, are diabetic. The most common and immediately life-threatening diabetic emergency, of course, is hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. This is almost universally defined as a glucose level of less than 60 milligrams per deciliter. The symptoms of hypoglycemia occur rapidly, often within minutes, and include things like feeling shaky, nervousness, anxiety, agitation or confusion, sweating, tachycardia, weakness or drowsiness, pale skin, sensations of tingling or numbness, especially to the face, lips or tongue apparent syncope, and, in severe cases, seizure, coma, and ultimately death. Treating hypoglycemia is rather straightforward. If the patient is alert enough and can follow commands, and they can safely swallow without a risk of choking, then the first line is to provide sugar for them to eat or drink. This might be an oral glucose paste, half a cup of juice, or a sugar-containing soda. Just make sure it's not diet. If the patient can't swallow safely, then IV dextrose should be given. IM glucagon is usually a second-line choice when venous axis can't be obtained. Of course, hypoglycemia isn't the only diabetic emergency. The opposite condition, hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, can also be dangerous. There are two types of hyperglycemic emergencies, diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS. You've probably heard of DKA, though you might not have heard of HHS before. The main way that the body tries to get rid of extra glucose is through urine. Since sugar follows water, the body tries to pee out the excess sugar. That's why polyuria, or frequent urination, is a classic sign of hyperglycemia. Unfortunately, this also tends to lead to severe dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. Look for signs of fluid volume depletion, such as decreased skin turgor, dry mouth or tongue, tachycardia, and in severe cases, hypotension. Your hyperglycemic patient might also report a history of feeling really hungry, polyphagia, or really thirsty, polydipsia. The increased thirst is because the body needs more water to flush out the sugar and replace the lost fluid. Being hungry when your blood sugar is already too high is a bit counterproductive. But it makes sense if you consider that the lack of insulin responsible for causing hyperglycemia in the first place also prevents the body from utilizing that extra sugar for energy, 
hence that insatiable appetite. Hyperglycemia is often the result of another underlying problem. Some common causes to look out for during your assessment in history include signs of infection, especially pneumonia and UTI, sepsis, recent use of diuretics or steroids, antipsychotic medications, cocaine, and of course, a known history of insulin use. Also, the stress of an MI or stroke can trigger hyperglycemia, so don't forget to obtain an EKG and perform a neurological assessment for those at-risk patients. Remember, it's possible to have more than one life-threatening emergency at a time, and you might come across someone that's in DKA that's also having a STEMI. Now, let's talk about DKA and HHS and how they differ. This is important because they're both dangerous, but if you aren't aware of how they present, you can easily miss one and end up not treating it. DKA consists of hyperglycemia, metabolic acidosis, ketonemia, and severe electrolyte abnormalities. It's most common with type 1 diabetics, though occasionally it develops in people with type 2. One important thing to keep in mind, especially with young children, is that DKA is often the very first sign that a person has type 1 diabetes. That means you should be on the lookout for it, even if they don't think they're diabetic. DKA symptoms usually develop quickly, over about 24 hours. Because metabolic acidosis is part of this condition, look for changes in respiration. The body primarily relies on the lungs to remove excess CO2 when blood becomes too acidic. In the early stages of DKA, the patient's respiratory rate will increase, but their tidal volume is likely to stay normal. That's why it's important to accurately count respirations. As DKA worsens, the patient can develop small respirations. These are deep, sighing respirations that are usually at a normal rate. These deep respirations are the result of the body trying to get rid of as much CO2 as possible in a desperate attempt to fix the acidosis. When the body doesn't have enough insulin to use glucose, it's forced to break down fat for energy. This process creates ketones, which is why patients in DKA sometimes have a fruity-smelling odor to their breath. That fruity smell, which I personally think smells more like nail polish remover, is the result of a specific type of ketone, acetone. Patients in DKA also often report GI complaints, such as nausea, vomiting, or abdominal pain. When present, this usually points to significant acidosis. Another super helpful tool in identifying DKA is capnography. An end-tidal CO2 less than 25, together with other signs and symptoms, means that DKA is highly likely. On the other hand, an end-tidal CO2 reading above 35 can almost rule out the condition. If you aren't already using capnography for more than just cardiac arrest, it's time to start. HHS more often affects people with type 2 diabetes. It also presents with elevated blood sugar, but generally doesn't include acidosis or ketosis. That means that HHS and DKA patients can look different. For instance, since they aren't likely to be acidotic, you probably won't notice significant changes in their respirations. And since they aren't producing ketones, their breath won't smell like acetone. Another difference between DKA and HHS are the blood sugar levels. DKA usually occurs when the blood sugar is around 350 or 400, though it can be as high as 800 or as low as 200. On the other hand, HHS usually produces much higher glucose levels, commonly above 800, 
and sometimes even more than a thousand. HHS also develops more slowly than DKA, usually over several days, and tends to involve neurological symptoms that can sometimes look stroke-like, such as unilateral paralysis or weakness. Initial treatment in the field for a hyperglycemic emergency, whether DKA or HHS, is the same. IV fluids. A carefully monitored bolus of normal saline does more than just treat dehydration. It also helps the patient's body better utilize insulin, reduces vasoconstriction, improving perfusion, and reduces stress hormone levels that cause the body to produce extra glucose. Once in the hospital, the patient will receive other medications, such as IV insulin and possibly potassium, but the sooner you can identify the need and provide fluids, the better the patient will do. You might be wondering if you should treat the acidosis of DKA with sodium bicarbonate. Most protocols advise against this because there's very little evidence to show that it's helpful, but there is evidence to show it can cause harm. So unless your system specifically requires you to do it, I'd steer clear of the bicarb. Now let's return to our call. While obtaining a history, you learn that the patient developed fever and cough two days ago and hasn't been able to eat or drink water. He also has diabetes and takes insulin. Your partner obtains vitals and tells you that the blood pressure is 100 over 70, heart rate 104, respirations 24 with normal tidal volume, and an O2 set of 98% on room air. The end tidal CO2 is 23. Your glucometer reports blood sugar is 430. A quick listen to his lungs reveals crackles. Knowing that these crackles are probably related to a respiratory infection and not pulmonary edema, you decide to start a line and administer a liter bolus of normal saline. You transport him to the hospital where he's admitted for pneumonia, sepsis, and diabetic ketoacidosis. Recognizing the signs and symptoms and identifying patients that are at risk for diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state and starting early fluid administration are the first steps in providing quality care for these patients. That's it for this episode of 911Cast. We'd like to thank our founding sponsor, OneKit, makers of high-quality first aid kits. Check out their products at buyonekit.com. That's B-U-Y-O-N-E kit.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.